Today's program has been brought to you by Fairway Market, like no other market, a New York City institution that sells the best local, national, and international artisan foods for prices that can't be beat. For more information, visit fairwaymarket.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. And we're back uh, on the main course. I'm Patrick Martins, and we are on the telephone with Thomas Odermatt. Thomas, are you with us? Yes, I am. Well, congratulations on 10 years in uh, the San Francisco, Northern California food scene. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much, Patrick. So uh, tell us a little bit. Well, first, tell us the items you make. You make a limited number of items. So just to put it in perspective for our listeners who have never eaten at your place, tell us what you cook and where you cook, uh, you know, where people can eat your food. Um, so my food is typically um, available at farmer's market in the Bay Area, in San Francisco and around. And then I do a greater amount of catering as well and the, the product is really like the meats uh, we have uh, chickens and then we have uh, porchetta which is a traditional uh, Italian street food um, pork belly rolled into the loin with the skin on and becomes crispy and we put them in a sandwich and that's really our um, our highlight and um, every ingredients we we are using um, we, we buy at the farmer's market and and literally, I mean, we are a mobile kitchen. Uh, we are we're a kitchen and wheel, so it is not a restaurant. Right, it's a rotisserie, right? I mean, it's a it's a thing. I mean, first of all, a middle, just for people to know, is a 35-pound part of the pig. And although sometimes Thomas w- wished it weighed 28 pounds, usually it weighs 35, and it is the entire loin... It's the entire belly, it's all the ribs, and it basically you take the bones out and roll it, right? And then you uh, and then you put it on the rotisserie where it kind of cooks in its own juices. Yes, it takes about uh, three and a half to four hours uh, to cook. Um, of course, I could cook it significantly faster, but that's not what's rotisserie all about. Uh, rotisserie is pretty much. Uh, let's let's take time to cook. That's what it is. Yeah, slow cooking. So now, were these mm-hmm. the same three items that you started with when you first broke into the scene ten years ago? No, 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 no. No, when I first uh, broke into the scene, uh, it, it, I had only chicken, uh, just chicken, and that was already ten years ago. It was a nightmare to find locally grown, free range. Um, high quality chicken. Um, literally, all they knew for rotisserie cooking here in California is let's get out of state chickens, pump them up, and put them on the spit, and that's it. And kind of the supermodel, a super supermarket model. Um, I I never believed in that. Never really liked it. So I had a really hard time to find top quality ingredients. Uh, uh, today it's significantly easier to get it uh, with the movement 
Uh, 10 years is a long time, but it's actually not long. And I'm just still impressed that 10 years we didn't have this, this quality. Yeah, I mean, it's really been a recent phenomenon that, uh, well, you know, I was just talking in the introduction of my show. I mean, in the early 80s, people were eating shitty food. I mean, in the early 80s, olive oils and, and the fr- French cheeses, they were just starting to come. I mean, Steve Jenkins of Dean and DeLuca with the famous cheese uh, plate. And then, um, you know, Lydia Bastianich, for instance, uh, with Lydia's, uh, she would bring in uh, San Marzano tomatoes and these great olive oils. I mean, it is such a recent phenomenon. Uh, you know, even the European imported stuff. Um, much less the whole movement. So, Thomas, tell us, how has the farmer's market scene changed over the past 10 years from the farmers to the clients? I think what I see is uh, that farmer's market nowadays has an increasing organic availability. So the producers are more organic, not really corporate organic, what I call it, however, small organic certifier and small family farms. Ten years ago, we, we had a handful in certain farmers market. Today, that scene has changed. I also see a lot of farmers ten years ago were not certified, were not organic farmers. They have changed. Mm-hmm. Also, the customer clientele, um, even in the downturn, um, economic downturn, I have seen that um, people people are just coming more to the farmer's market. They want to... People are educated. People wanted to know where the food comes. People are reading about it. People wanted to know what they put in their mouth and who is behind. And that's what I see. And that has changed over the past 10 years incredibly. Now, what has been your greatest challenge as someone who, you know, is very focused on doing two or three things very well um, right now? But, I mean, what has been your biggest challenge surviving amongst this sea of organic and sustainable and local producers making better products? Wow, that's a very, very complex question. Um, You know... I don't have really big challenges. I do have some challenges, uh, but they're not really overly great. Um, I don't. I see more the other the other one that I don't actually have any challenge. Um, we we create a product, we stick to it. Um, yes, we can change the flavor profile of the chicken, the pork. I don't touch the pork um, flavor profile because I don't want to change anything. And um, when I talk about challenge, um, I, I think in our business, literally, uh, truthfully said, I, in just in my business, in my rotisserie, small little rotisserie business, I don't have those challenges at all, actually. Mm-hmm. So you don't have challenges, but I mean... Um is it a challenge, for instance, to stick with one thing 
in this in this United States where everyone is, you know, changing the menu completely and they were doing this and now they don't do that at all and now they're doing something completely you different. You've stuck to time-honored techniques, which is why your sandwiches and foods are considered really the tastiest maybe in all the U.S. But is that a challenge to stay motivated to do the same thing so perfect? Patrick, now I understand the question. I think what I try to do is I do I focus on rotisserie. I have joy on rotisserie cooking. I am more like European chefs, European cooks, European farmers. They stick with something, they go for it. Why always change? Changing makes the whole life even more boring. <laughs> makes it more very, very some. I have to worry that I come up with a product that people like. No, I love really my business model. I like to focus on the business model, but on the other hand is I wanted to be the best. I wanted to be the best rotisserie grill master that is out there. And that's more of a European model. I am not what I always call, I'm not a springbok. I don't <laughs> jump the fence. I am just what I am. Now, uh, what does the rotisserie allow you to do that, for instance, a grill or barbecue or any of the myriad of other methods uh, do not allow you to do? Why, why the rotisserie? I can cook everything on the rotisserie, literally everything. I, I, can, cook, um, I can cook really everything and watch how products develop themselves. Products are very, very joyful in the grill. It sounds a little bit philosophical, but products appreciate, like for instance, a pork loin really appreciates me to give slow heat, but constant heat. The pork loin would not like me to cook with 500 degrees Fahrenheit and say, okay, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. No, 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 no. That's not rotisserie. The rotisserie and the pork will tell me, take a little time, perhaps have a glass of wine, <laughs> if I could. <laughs> but um, take time. It's really time that makes the product great. Can I make a business model with it? I believe so, because I do know that I can also stage products in the rotisserie that it takes time to gradually produce but um, I, I, I'm i not against hurry and uh, let's make sales or whatever no 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 I like to make sales I need to survive as well now, what is, uh, what is the, uh, do you still learn things? I mean, does uh, the amount of skin, well, I, I love, Thomas, that with, with every sandwich, you always put a very healthy dose of skin on it, on it. so it has that cr crunchiness, that cracklingness that I love so much. But do you still 
does the rotisserie and the pork itself uh, still reveal things to you after all these years? Or would you say you've achieved mastery status after having been so consistent with the same task for so many years? It's really interesting to ask you these questions because most people do not do the same thing for more than a few years or something. And now for 10, you've been perfecting a single item, which, you know, goes contrary to how many people think. But of course, you've truly achieved something great. I mean, how does a master still learn new things? I think in terms of my uh, porqueta, I think I've never learned Finnish yet. I'm still, every day I cook a porqueta, I still watch it. I'm still impressed that I learn every day a little bit something about the rotisserie and, you know, it's the speed, it's the fire, it's the wind, it's the weather, it's the moisture. Mm. All those affect my output uh, of a a porchetta. The flavor profile, everybody can do that. Mm. In the whole world, everybody knows probably what my ingredients are. It's so easy. But what makes my porchetta different is that I have studied and stand in front of that grill for 10 years, and I still, still learn every day on it. And I, I'm just impressed, the sound, you know, that crackling, that when, it, when it's almost finished, how, how, how it, and, and I always wondering, it technically comes always the same minute, the same time, and I'm wondering why. Mm-hmm. Although they are different, pigs every week, different breed, different farmer, different environment. It's the same time that they start to crackle, Mm -hmm. almost to the minute. And that's what impresses me. And I want to, I don't want to, honestly, I don't want to alter the product. I want to work with the product, learn the product. Yes, and if I need to stay another 10 years in the grill, it's a, it's okay. It's hmm. fun. Now, um, let me ask, before I want to ask you about some of the big 10th anniversary uh, events at Chapinese, yeah. but first I want to ask uh, what you uh, what are the most poignant or significant things that you learned from your father in Switzerland who was also in a similar you know, in the butchering uh, you know, uh, preparation business uh, prepared foods business uh, what, what yeah. do you take uh, from him the most? as you are in your 10th year? Passion. Passion about the products. My father is a very unique butcher. He loves the farmer more than he actually loves the meat. <laughs> he always said, he, I need to know the farmer. I need to know what, what, what kind of character is, what, who is he? Then I know what kind of product I will get. Mm-hmm. And... We in Switzerland, in our town, we sourced everything in the town. Literally everything. I grew up in a farming town outside of Zurich, Switzerland. And yes, we had, we had meats and we had farmers in that town. And, and that's all what my father uh, used. He, he, um, he, he used uh, meats from, from, uh, from local farmers. And that... I am so inspired about that. But then on the other hand is I'm also very inspired. When he touches a meat, it is like a beautiful, frosted, 
um, like a musician that is creating a masterpiece, it's not the speed, it's touching the meat, understanding this product can do that and that and that. And it always keep in mind, it's nourishing, it's not show. It's not show. Meat is not show. Meat is nourishing. And the animal has grown up to nourish, and we are nourishing ourselves with that meat. And that's what my father always told me. Does he use a bandsaw or a knife? Or both? I mean, he, he obviously uses a knife, but does he use bandsaw? He doesn't bandsaws? use a bandsaw. No. He does not use a bandsaw. The most saw he uses is a handsaw, mm-hmm. and he does what I call joint butchery. Joint butchery is based on bones. Have your knife as close as possible to the bone as possible. Meaning, with other words, he knows the anatomy of the animal very, very well, probably better than a doctor, than a veterinarian, so that he can get as close to the bone without interacting and damaging the meat in between. Mm -hmm. So that's also, it's incredible to see. Now he is 90, but when he came here last time, he was 86, and he's in top shape. He doesn't eat a lot of meat, but he eats always a little bit meat. Mm -hmm. And And when he cuts, he only uses the first couple of inches of the knife, right? Uh, I mean, that's the sharpest part. And where you control um, it the most. Correct. He holds the knife like a sushi master hold, holds um, the, the chopstick to prepare mm-hmm. certain things. He really holds the knife very, very different. He thinks, or I think, he holds the knife so close to the animal, to the bone, like, like you would use your fingernails to mm-hmm. cut the meat. Mm. It's incredible to see it. And that's, I think that's art. I mean, my father was in the business for for 60 somewhat years, actually over 60 years himself. And he did the same thing, mm. butchering every day, meat, meat, meat. Very interesting, and so uh, very fascinating. I could uh, we could talk many more shows about uh, what we just got into, and we should. Uh, that's what this network is for: is to archive these types of fascinating food stories. But uh, to bring us to the current day, uh, I know uh, you have got the full city of uh, San Francisco and Oakland and Berkeley. Uh, together uh, to celebrate your 10th anniversary. I know I was introduced to you by Alice Waters, and I know that there's uh-huh. a big event uh, with Alice. Um, how How was that, and, and how is it going, and how is everyone reacting to 10 years of Roly Roti? Everybody's very impressed. I mean, I kind of lead the, the mobile food truck movement in a gourmet section, uh, so I was really one of the first and 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 today a lot of people are impressed that it's already been 10 years it's 10 years really roti yes we make a huge party at Japanese with all these others I am extremely proud I'm extremely proud uh, I I don't know what to say but on the menu uh, we have heritage chicken um, I mean 
not really heritage, uh, just old-fashioned birds, locally grown. And we have porchetta, of course, and we make arangini. Arangini are fried little rice balls. Fried rice ball, but I put them on the rotisserie. Oh, interesting. And they come out very, very crispy. Just know how. <laughs> incredible product. Well, I really, um, I recommend everybody go. I mean, I know there's other farmer's markets. You can look at the Roly Roly website. But, of course, Ferry Plaza on Saturdays is the most uh, uh, visited one. And uh, uh, I, whether you come very early and, and watch Thomas and his team set up or if you uh, watch the, you know, all of the washing of all the equipment afterwards. I mean, and then, uh, and, and then all the lines form. It's a real social institution, that line. And, uh, you know, I, I'm a big admirer of yours. And, uh, you know, it's, it's really easy to, to say that you, uh, it's the best, tastiest sandwich uh, that I've ever had. So um, I wish you all the success and, and choices and, and, and all your dreams come true. It's nice to talk and sell to a master and uh, I think everyone agrees that uh, you are one so thank you for taking a, a few minutes to uh, share your story and I, and I hope you come back and we could talk more about your father absolutely I, I would love to yes Yes, I would love to. All right. Uh -huh. Well, uh, we're going to so take much, a break, and we will come back with Danny Williamson of Good Shepherd Turkey Ranch talking about genetic diversity in poultry. Thanks. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Steve Jenkins from Fairway Markets. I've devoted my idiot career to the old ways, the old recipes, the old tools, the old geography of where serious foods come from for centuries. And I've strived to make these wonderful things available to New Yorkers for 37 years. So it's a fait accompli for us to support Heritage Radio Network. And I hope you will too, and I hope you'll keep tuning in. For more information, please visit fairwaymarket.com. Well, we're back. Welcome back to the main course. My name is Patrick Martins. We are broadcasting out of Roberta's Restaurant, 261 Moore Street, Bushwick, Brooklyn. And in studio is Danny Williamson. Welcome, Danny. Thank you, Patrick. Danny, are you? what's your title? The president, right, of the uh, Good Shepherd Poultry Ranch? I'm actually general manager and chief financial officer. All right. Yeah. CFO and uh, chief manager. That is uh, no small task when it comes to the various projects you guys are working on. So uh, tell me, why are you in town and what are you uh, hoping to teach people well we're here to uh, uh talk to people about the heritage turkey movement this year you know we've got thanksgiving coming up here in uh, about a month and a half and so we just want to make sure that we can inform people uh about what they're getting with their heritage turkeys and uh just uh here to answer questions you know we we like to get out and talk to people and 
and let them know we're actually real people out here. So. Hmm. Now, what is uh, some of the biggest misunderstandings uh, that the public has about this idea of heritage? Uh, probably the probably the biggest one is uh, the turkey flavor. Uh, you know, we got a lot of people that uh, ask for bourbon reds or, or bronze turkeys, thinking that there's a different flavor in each one of them. Uh, they're all going to taste the same. I've cooked enough of these turkeys over the years, and uh, they're all going to taste the same. You're going to get a good you're going to get a good flavor heritage turkey no matter which one you get but as long as it is heritage now this term is ballyhooed a lot by a bunch of people a bunch of different companies i mean does that upset you when you see that word get used the wrong way or is that flattering to you because you were one of you know you were the founder of the movement uh in a way it is flattering that people are trying to emulate us uh, but it it does get upsetting to us when people are trying to uh, market their birds as heritage turkeys when they're not actually using uh, the stipulations that a heritage turkey is supposed to meet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, that does upset us sometimes because Frank and I have put a lot of effort into getting these birds to where they need to be. Frank Reese. Yeah, Frank Reese. So now the USDA allows only you to use the name heritage on the USDA bug on your farm for the time being. So where are other people putting the word heritage and why isn't anything being enforced out there? Uh, a lot of people are just using it in their advertising mm-hmm. uh, because actually legally they cannot put it on a label on their bird. Hmm. Uh, you will see a lot of people advertising them as heritage birds, but when you see them in their bag, they just say turkey. <laughs> yep, they just say turkey. So what is heritage poultry? Uh, Heritage Poultry is actually, it was established uh, back in the 1873 with the American Poultry Association. Uh, it's the oldest or- agricultural organization in the, in the United States. Uh, it was a group of people that got together that were raising chickens and turkeys and ducks and geese and decided to get together and write a standard for what they were supposed to look like. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Frank and I first started this uh, about 12 years ago now, uh, there were no, uh, heritage turkey was not a definition. Uh, when we started working on this, uh, we were calling them standard bread turkeys. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we had some people telling us that, uh, Hey, you guys should think of a snappy name to call them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we had some people say, well, why don't you call them heritage turkeys? So, you know, we went with that flow and, and it's, we haven't looked back since. Now, how do you keep up? with the uh you know standards with the the looks uh you know with the with what's changing out there with breeding and poultry i mean i take it poultry shows has a lot to do with it right i mean just seeing turkeys constantly and judging and chickens things like that uh you know uh there are state fairs all around the united states mm-hmm. and then there are also just poultry shows that are done at other times uh, I was actually just in Chicago a couple weeks ago judging a, a fair up or a, a poultry show in Chicago. Um, and just going around and looking at the birds, uh, you know, they're all supposed to meet a standard that was written in 1873. Uh, the standard has not changed, so the birds should look the same year after year. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably the biggest thing is is actually going out and, and talking to people. Um, you know, it's it's great. I've made a lot of friends uh, in the APA. And that's part of it is a camaraderie, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, in in raising poultry. 
Now, let me ask, are there certain breeds that are really technically, you know, off the record heritage, but they just don't fit into those 1873 standards, and so they can't really be called that? Actually, any breed of chicken or turkey or duck or geese that is accepted by the American Poultry Association standard of perfection can be called a heritage breed poultry. And some of these are more recent entries than 1873? Yes. Uh, there's some that have uh, been admitted, you know, five, six years ago. Okay. Uh, there's been a lot of birds that have been admitted since the very beginning. Now, your uh, specialty, I believe you're a, uh, a licensed uh, judge or, or the highest standard of judge for the black turkey, right? And for other poultry as well? Uh, yes. Uh, the black turkey, I'm what's called a master exhibitor. Mm-hmm. I have won enough shows uh, with my black turkeys to get that spe- special recognition. And I'm actually the only person in the United States to ever hold that. Hmm. Uh, so that is very special to me because that's what I started ra- raising was the black turkeys. And they're, and they're very special to me. They're rare breed they're a rare breed um, how many other farmers raise those uh you know probably across the united states there's probably maybe 10 or 12 that hmm. ra- actually raise them uh but they won't they will raise less than 20 wow and i bet you know a lot of them actually i do quite you know a lot of them got their genetics from me to start with so is there a lot of commonalities for instance with like the dog show the westminster dog show that i know a lot of people watch when it comes here to madison square garden um are you looking to when you judge are you looking to see if each chicken or each turkey best shows you know the representative features and traits of their own breed or variety uh, it's exactly like that um the probably the only difference is uh that the the birds aren't on a leash mm-hmm. uh they're in a cage uh but yeah they have the exact standard that uh, we're looking for to make sure that they conform to that standard uh not only in body shape uh but in weight mm-hmm. and color um, the birds are judged on on several different things to mm-hmm. to fi- figure out which one is the best of the best. No, oh, very interesting. Well, I mean, it is definitely uh, over the past twelve years, the Good Shepherd story has been uh, you know one of the greatest uh, uh, revitalization or you know saving of an endangered livestock species success stories you know of the past you know, 40, 50 years. Um, and I'm sure the message has changed throughout, uh, each of those years because, you know, first you're trying to introduce the concept, then you're trying to reinforce certain things. So now you're coming on your 12th year. What is the message? I mean, what are the, the bullet points you give now about why it's important to, you know, buy a good shepherd ranch uh, turkey? Uh, the main thing is for genetic diversity. Uh, you know, when Frank and I started this, uh, there were very few of these birds raised. Uh, and the more birds that we can raise and get out there and, and get on people's Thanksgiving dinner tables, uh, the more diverse the genetics will become. Uh, and the more diverse the genetics are, uh, the better off the bird will be and it will have a uh, better livelihood in the mm-hmm. end uh, and be able to survive. Well, I was always struck most by that comment that your turkeys survive various, uh, you know, pathogens like ovarian bird flu better than than the other kinds. I mean, that is a big stat right there. Well, it's an honor to have you in the city. You should come more often and uh, be on the show more often. But good luck. You have a crazy couple months coming ahead. Um, So thanks for taking a few minutes and coming in studio. Well, thanks for inviting me up, Patrick.
Joe, that interesting uh, interview, isn't it, Joe? I never thought I would learn so much about turkeys today. I know. Who would have thought? You were like, Mom, I've made it in life. I, I know all these poultry facts now. Did you know there are 10 breeds of turkey out there? Well, it's uh, very interesting. Well, you know, Danny was in town. Uh, we also have, uh, in keeping with our San Francisco theme, we have uh, three well-respected Filipino chefs who are in town for a series of events to celebrate uh, Filipino chefs in San Francisco, here in New York. So uh, Purple Yam has organized a few events, and uh, they have uh, one more night available. Uh, it's the last night tonight, so if you have not made plans yet, I'm going to be giving out the number to Purple Yam uh, on Cortelou Avenue in Brooklyn uh, to our listeners, and I definitely think you should come and try the food of these three cats right here. So in studio, we have, of course... An old New York institution, uh, Romy, uh, of uh, Purple Yam, uh, whose wife, uh, Amy Bessa, and him, uh, you know, put together this event. And they have three guests, all in from San Francisco. So we have Kokoi, uh, who is, did I pronounce that right? Yes, thank you. Okay, yeah, speak close to the mic, pull your mics close. Uh, so Kokoi, who is the chef of Kokoi Culinary Services. We have Tim, who's the chef of uh, Attic. And also has two food trucks, including the Wild Food Truck. Again, all Filipino theme. And we have a, a great uh, other Filipino chef named Dominique, who's also in town. So, first of all, welcome. And how have the events gone so far? I'll start with you, Kokoy. Well, first, thank you, thank you for having us over. That's great. Um, well, it's really exciting to have us uh, over and actually doing what we do here in New York. Um, we're so... Uh, um, happy that uh, we have received so warm, uh, a very warm um, reception uh, here in Brooklyn. Very, now, is the Filipino food different on the West Coast than it is from what you've seen uh, on the menu at Purple Yam, or is it uh, is it the same? It's just a state of mind, I guess, uh -huh. Uh -huh, and also location. But in essence, it's uh, all the same. It's the same passion. It's the same ingredients. Um, you know the same. You know the same take and the same approach we do uh, back in San Francisco, and the same approach we've been doing here. Um, so you know, it's just a matter of uh, personal take, I, I guess. Yeah. Now, what is that? Where is your restaurant located in San Francisco? I'm based in. Um, I'm actually based in South San Francisco. Okay. Uh, I provide uh, culinary services uh, privately uh, for certain clients, and also consulting in several restaurants. Oh, very very nice. And Tim, uh, you came. Uh, uh, came east as well for this event. How's it been going? And uh, tell us about your restaurant and trucks. Well, yeah, this event is great. Um, we're very grateful for Amy and uh, Chef Romy to put this whole event together. It's bridging the gap between the whole West Coast and East Coast Filipino food movement mm -hmm. because both um, both coasts want this food to succeed or be the next emerging, um, you know, like Asian, uh, Southeast Asian cuisine. Mm -hmm. And there's so much roots and culture with a lot of Filipinos all over America. Um, it's the second largest immigrant population, uh, Asian immigrant population, and um, you know, hopefully, it's about time that people, um, you know, recognize and realize this food. And so, it's great from coast to coast. We're connecting the gap, and uh, you know, I'm learning stuff out here that um, you know we that they do differently in New York and Brooklyn with meeting the other chefs out here, um, King from Kuma Inn and, and stuff like that, and. It's stuff that we could take back there and then and, and hopefully, um, you know, return the favor to them, mm -hmm. uh, fly them back West Coast and, you know, bridge this whole gap. With now, Filipino. what are the commonalities between, uh, what, what is, how would you distinguish Filipino food from, let's say, you know, other 
foods from that area of the world? Uh, I mean, for people who've never eaten Filipino food before. It's, uh, they have, there's this, um, some great native food um, that the Filipinos have, and then also the, the cross-pollination of the Chinese-Filipino connection, the Spanish-Filipino connection, and the Latino-Filipino connection. And so it's, it's, it is a world food, and, and um, you know, it, has, it has its own um, personal roots. And so it, it's kind of interesting because you know, Spanish food is, has been in the limelight for, um, for so long, and you know, Chinese food has been around forever. And, and you know, if... if, if People can can um, break the stigmas and whatnot of what Filipino cuisine is and the bullets and and the the weird stuff and the dog eaters and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Then um, it's just it, it they can realize they they can see like the, the the cultural influences that have been influenced on the country and, and how that cuisine has has emerged from, mm-hmm. and hopefully get down and deep into what their cuisine is really about and the native the native dishes and stuff like that and very interesting and now last question uh, before i I, uh, go to dominic but you just did uh the eat real festival with your uh, wild food truck was that a success did a lot of people come uh, to jack london square it was it was a huge event and every year it's it's yeah it's great um hundreds of thousands of people and all kinds of cultural food um you know there's a few uh several filipino food trucks Mm -hmm. and um, yeah, the Eat Real. I'd suggest if, if anyone can make it out there, it's an annual event in um, you know in Jacklin and Square. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. very cool, all food trucks. Very interesting. So uh, Dominic, you're in town too. Tell us a little bit about some of the dishes that have been on uh, the menu and uh, uh, your contribution uh, and, and what's going to be on the menu tonight for people who still come. Well, and some of the dishes are going to be the classic purple yam dishes and some of the dishes that we have to offer of what we bring, kind of. Our sense of our take of, of Philippine cuisine, sometimes for, for other people, there's traditional. And for me, kind of a, you know, being born here in America, I have a different take on what Filipino food, kind of how it represents itself. So there's a little bit of in, in regards to the difference between that, too. And, I'm, you know, I'm trying to understand what, you know, my, my take of what Filipino food is, what I read in books and what I read in kind of from different people. And, you know, and I don't get that sense because I've never been kind of back there mm-hmm. in the Philippines to understand food. So my take is a little bit... Um, just different. I think it, it's not bad in that way. I just try to get the flavors and the essence of what the food is, and you know, I'm bringing. I'm hoping that's what I'm bringing to the table here. Well, give us an example. I mean, give us a, a dish in detail. You know, with the ingredients. So, so, so my dishes. I did a, a beef steak, beef steak Tagalog, which is you know a traditional Filipino kind of breakfast dish where it's like a sautéed meat, um, kind of you know dry, not necessarily dry, but maybe it's somewhat chewy sometimes because of the marinade with a lemon. So I change it up where I use like a, a, a meat. So we use the um, what a flank steak. We use the skirt steak. We grill just pure grilled salt and pepper, no marinade. Where it's traditional in the Philippines to be marinated. And I just what I did was uh, sautéed some onions or braised onions with a calamansi, which where's the traditional sense of what a beef steak is. is What's a calamansi? Calamansi is like a Philippine lime. Okay. Uh, yeah. So and and so it, is that imported from the Philippines? Yeah, they grow it out in they grow it out in the West Coast. Very kind of you know it's it's a lot of backyard farmers. Like, God, those lucky know. bastards! They yeah. can grow everything out there. Yeah, so we don't have that luxury so, here. You know, Tim would go on weekends to his you know his special you know special hiding place of where he can get a big old bag of you know fresh calamansi that I'd have to kind of poach from him every now and then. It's like the Meyer lemon of the Philippines. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's Meyer lemon growing in every backyard out there. Yeah. So mm-hmm. so, so that's you know. In, in, in a sense that's my difference it's like you know I try to give the flavors of what the dish is maybe but in a different sense mm-hmm. um, but it's still you know the purity of the dish and still the understanding of the flavors and what 
you know the culture represents within that so it's not so much in regards to like a fusion of completely different you know foods but it's the same flavor it's just yeah. within a different setting very interesting now of course there have been uh, all these events happen uh, i know romy you're a big uh uh, a big, uh, you know, speaker, spokesperson for you and Amy for Filipino, although Amy's a better spokesperson, but uh, sometimes you get uh, given the mic uh, by force. But uh, tell me about, I mean, are there a lot of Filipino people here in New York? And what, you know, yeah, are there a lot of Filipino people? Yeah, there's quite a big uh, chunk of Filipinos here in Brooklyn. I'm not too much in Brooklyn, but mostly in Queens. But not many Filipino Jersey. restaurants. Not too many. True Filipino restaurants. Why is that? I mean, that's an interesting... I've always wondered, because your food's so delicious, I'm wondering why more Filipino people have not opened restaurants. Oh, this is a... The million-dollar question. <laughs> question. You're too good. They'll never beat you. That's why, <laughs> Chef Romy. <laughs> They're all in San Francisco. <laughs> well, but anyway, to talk to specifically, mm-hmm. like, Dominic made this uh, heritage pork shank and uh, deboned it and uh, braised it and uh, finally uh, make it crisp by frying it. Mm-hmm. So it's we call it crispy pata. Mm. And then we have the lechon, from uh, which it's not the regular spit roasted lechon. Mm-hmm. And then we 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 also use the pork belly uh, heritage. Pork belly with ribs. With ribs, skin on, bone has, in, skin <laughs> on. You got it all on there. I don't know. Of course, the big thing that was we sold out. Of? The goat. The goat. Yeah. It is goat-tober almost yeah. anyway. Yeah. Goat, goat. Yeah. And did that work? Is goat a traditional Filipino food? I know pig is big, uh, but how about goat? Not as big, but it's in a certain region, for example, in the Ilocos region. That's mm-hmm. a big thing. Okay. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, they grow and they, they survive anywhere, right? Yes. And how was the goat prepared? Did you uh, pull all the meat off and prepare it one way, or did you prepare no, the different we, sections? No, uh, it's a whole... Uh, goat and we spit roasted it and just marinated it in turmeric and garlic oil and lots of herbs excellent and, and then we serve it with uh, pineapple salsa ah very nice um, well I know no event happens without a whole team and a village behind it so there were certain sponsors right that made uh, today's uh, or this weekend's event possible? Absolutely. Kokoi, tell us. Uh, sure. Uh, Heritage Foods have been uh, very generous in uh, giving us uh, uh, meat to work with. Never heard of them. Thank you for the pig's ear and also for the goat, the fantastic uh, piece of, uh, of, of goats. So we have a couple of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and butterfly that thing and put it on fire in the backyard. It's uh-huh. really great. Uh, and also for the uh, pork belly and pork sides and all those good stuff. Very good. And we'd also like to thank Pacific Island Supermarkets and uh, San Francisco for providing us uh, a lot of uh, the tropical goods that uh, we use in our pantry and also produce and also the, one of the very few Filipino wineries in Napa Valley, mm. uh, Corte Riva Vineyards, uh, for providing us uh, wines uh, for pairing. Do they uh, make traditional, is that just Filipino-owned, but they make California wines or do they, they make, make Cali- a Filipino style of wine? No, these are strictly California-style wines, uh, very well um, very well made, uh, and actually have uh, uh, garnered quite a following, and also mm. um, great reviews for that as well. 
Well, fantastic. Uh, do you have websites that uh, when you're not at E-Real, I mean, can we go around and uh, how sure. people can contact you or learn more about Filipino cuisine? The contact form is available on my website. Okay. Kokoy.org. That's C-O-C-O-Y? Yes, the O-R-G. O.org. So it's a nonprofit organization. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. About educating people on Filipino culture. That's right. Very Absolutely. nice. Thank you. Tim? Uh, AtticRestaurant.com and um, TheWowTruck.com. Filipino food truck. Where yeah. can your trucks be found? You have to fly it's, it down, or do you park it's somewhere? It's pretty much all over the Bay Area, Bay Area. Okay. and so yeah, the mobile, the whole mobile scene. And so, me no, no. no just, Dominic just, is just walk master. down the street and just quiet master. He's I'm a ninja. You just gotta find me. No one knows, but he'll kick your ass in the kitchen for sure. Well, there's still a few seats left. The event's been a huge success, but it's at Purple Yam on Cordelou Avenue, so right at the end of Prospect Park. If you want to reserve, and if not tonight, if you can't make it tonight, definitely go get a true taste of Filipino cuisine. I mean, uh, Romy and Amy have been doing this for decades, first in Soho and now here uh, in Brooklyn. So uh, the number to reserve is, right, get your pens out, 718-940-8188. Tell Romy, uh, if if he comes out, that... Heritage Radio Network sent you, and you get uh, 2% off of uh, a beer from uh, <laughs> Philippines. I don't know if that's Sonic true or beer. not. But uh, anyway, gentlemen, best of luck. Uh, we're big fans of uh, Filipino food, uh, my wife and I and everyone here at Heritage. So uh, best of luck getting the word out, and uh, enjoy your rest of your weekend here. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank Thanks, you. Patrick. Thank you, Romy. Thanks. Thank you, Amy. And we'll be back next week, and stay tuned for Straight No Chaser. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.